Today, we're going to 1 John chapter 3. I've been preaching from 1 John this summer, talking about love first. And some of you have mentioned how the scriptures of 1 John are impacting your life. And I hope that they are, that you are feeling uh, changed and transformed by the power of God's Word. I reviewed at the request of a church not long ago their articles of faith. And I commented to them when I was through reading them. I sent them an email and said, how does a Christian church describe their entire understanding of God, the church, and the work of the church without using the word love? How'd you do that? You sure that's an accurate way to describe the God who made us, how he's acted on our behalf through Christ, and our responsibilities toward him and in our world. Can you really do that without using the word love? It's such a useful word. Just four letters, not too long. It has some interesting synonyms, but it's huge. It's huge in the Bible in the ministry of Jesus, who reduced all the commands, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, who said the entire law and the prophets is summarized, love God, love your neighbor. Seems to me to be a very huge word. It's not too big in your mind, in your theology, in your heart, in your practice of living on the planet. Maybe today could be a change. Maybe by some degree, God might prompt you with his own love towards you and the call to love your neighbor and so change the way you walk and live your life out. Now, today it's confidence before God. Last week I talked about how love makes peace. And I'm going to backtrack a little bit as I begin to read the text from 1 John chapter 3. But it is a continuing theme of the Apostle John who notices that believers are not walking in confidence like they ought to. I am not going to suggest to you that you walk on burning hot coals between 1,200 and 2,000 degrees like Tony Robbins did yesterday at a motivational conference where he had 6,000 people present and 21 of them were taken to, the, to get medical attention because they burned their feet. If you check his website, it says, uh, this is how you show confidence. Walk on those coals. We're not going to do that to you. We don't have any rattlesnakes or other vipers in boxes here for you to handle. I mean, you could show your confidence in God by handling some snakes this morning. It's amazing to me how people think they're going to achieve confidence before God, how they're going to walk with confidence on the planet. John the Apostle, who knew and loved Jesus so well, writes for us so we will have confidence before God in our walk with him. It's 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to start with verse 18, okay? 
where the Scripture says, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. We could camp on that verse a while, but we're not, okay? Dear children, let's not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask because we obey His commands and do what pleases Him. And this is His command, to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He commanded us. Those who obey His commands live in Him and He in them. And this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us this is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. I don't know if there's anything more important than this passage for the believer in New Orleans this very day. There are two pillars here by which you know, by which you have confidence in God's presence. The one is obedience. There is no confidence without obedience. The second is the Spirit. There is no confidence without the Spirit. John introduces the idea of obedience here as he talks about confidence because there are those who suppose that they can walk boldly in the world without seeking to live a holy life. 
Just live any way you want to. You've been saved. You've trusted Jesus. Your external body doesn't matter, so you just go out and live it up. And John is saying, no. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, that's cheap grace. That's grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. We're not talking about cheap grace. We're talking about the free gift of God that changes your life and calls you to lay everything down on his behalf. There is no confidence before God without obedience. You know this experientially. Because when you walk out of God's way, and you know it, when you willfully sin, when you go out these doors and do things that dishonor God, it shakes you on the inside. You may say to yourself, well, I'm not hurting anybody but me. But you know that's not true. Because it, it has destabilized you, this sin you've gotten involved in. You don't have the confidence in your walk anymore. The grace, the faith, the truth, the real courage. It starts seeping away out of your life when you don't walk in obedience. And you know it. And you come to church with your head hanging down and maybe you avoid the word and the place of prayer because you've been disobedient and it feels bad inside. There is no confidence without obedience. Now, John says here we're to obey the commands. Obey his commands and do what pleases him. I like those two connected together. What do you think about them? Obey his commands and do what pleases him. You may be looking for a list of commands in the, gospel, in, in the letter of John, thinking maybe he's going to reiterate the Ten Commandments. Maybe he's going to let us know what the specifics are about these commands. Obey his commands. What are you talking about, John, specifically? Let me know. And John's specifics are believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and obey one another and love one another. That's how the commands come out. So John never does address the Ten Commandments. Doesn't ever get real specific about things. Last week we discovered he said, don't be like Cain who murdered his brother. Okay, we got that. There's a specific. If you want to obey the commands, don't walk out these doors and go shoot somebody. Don't hate your brother. He later on expands it to that. Anybody who hates his brother, he says, walks in darkness. So we know that. All our lives, we're looking for these specific things that we can do. And if we do them, then God will be satisfied. Sometimes we focus so much on the specifics that we forget that what God is really looking for is the child who longs to please him. I had a child that so wanted to please me. Really, I never had to lay a hand on her when she did wrong. Just knowing that daddy was upset at her broke her heart. 
She'd break down in tears if she just knew I was not pleased. That was Rachel, the oldest one. For those who were thinking it was Rebecca, all right? (laughs) She just wanted pleased. You know what? When I saw that in her heart, it just filled me with a satisfaction and joy as a dad. There's something about a child that just wants to please you as dad. C.S. Lewis wrote this. I want you to see it. We might think that God wanted simply obedience to a set of rules, whereas he really wants people of a particular sort. There were people who obeyed the rules, They gave their tithe. They went to church. They said their prayers. I had a man once confront me. Had a lot of bitterness and anger inside of him. And he cornered me as his preacher and he said, Preacher, if I give 10%, won't God be pleased with me? And I thought, look at yourself. The kind of anger in you. The impatience people that hard edge on your personality the way you relate to others you're hard on yourself yes and you're hard on others how can God be pleased with an angry heart with a bitter spirit no matter if you're keeping the I's dotted and the T's crossed if you become the kind of person that is hard to live with, difficult to get along with, judgmental, unyielding, and often, yes, unforgiving, don't think that your 10% will buy God's favor. He's not just looking for 10 percenters. He's looking for the hundred percenters who gave it all to God, laid down their pride, laid down their rights, laid down their lives and said, Lord, everything I have is yours. Make me like you. He's looking for a person of a particular kind to follow him with a whole heart not focused on the law but focused on the God who speaks the word this is why obedience for John is never conforming to a list of regulations but it is loving God back the way He's loved you. It's letting that love permeate your life so that it touches the brother, touches the stranger and the neighbor, and is your style of being in the world. You can summarize the commands in two simple things. Believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And love one another. 
There it is. The summary. When you have trusted Christ as Savior and Lord, and you are loving one another, not just in word and tongue, but in deed and in truth, then you come before the Father with a confidence inside. You have confidence in his presence. Why? Because you've walked or sought to in obedience, and that's your heart. And you're seeking to please him because he's the focus of your life. Jesus pleased the Father with everything he did. The Father announced his pleasure in his Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. When the candidates get ready to go in that water. I want them to go in there not because they're trying to take care of the letter of the law, but because they want to please the Father like Jesus did. Lord, I want to please you. And this baptism is a picture of me laying down my life, giving it all, turning it all over to you. If you hold back from the Lord 90% of your life or 50% of your life or the 5% that's locked away in the closet where you never take him, you're not fully loving him back like he loved you. In fact, it is that place locked away in you, the sin that you cherish and nurture and love so much. That dark place in your life has got to be opened up to the light of God's love. You've got to let him in there because you protect that place that is unsurrendered, where you are unwilling to take God in your prayer life. Because of that, you stand before him and your heart condemns you. There is no confidence because you know what's locked away deep inside. It's got to be turned over to him. There is no confidence without obedience. And obedience has got to be not me telling God things, but me walking in a way that pleases him every day. It's got to be in action and in truth. Part of the problem of obedience in First John is that he's not really talking about the things we commit so much as the things we omit. And that gets us, you know. Because loving one another is not something you commit, but it's something you often omit. And these sins of omission don't seem to fly as high as the sins of commission in our own spectrum of morality. But for John, this is where it is. He was startled and amazed to find that Jesus loved him, loved him passionately. I mean, the love of Christ focused on this man 
made a dramatic change in his life. It's how he thought of himself from that time forward. And when he talks about the love of Jesus, he talks about what we heard, what we saw, and what we felt. We felt it. Jesus loving us. And that's the nature of the love that he unleashes through us. So if we're going to love one another as he commanded us, it's got to be an active going forward into the world to my neighbor, to my brother, to the stranger. Part of the care effect. And care effect is the name that we've given to our compassion ministries, the umbrella term for our compassion ministries. Part of the nature of the care effect is what it does to the one who gives care. The care effect is three things. How it changes me as I give care to another human being. How it affects that human being who is cared for. And how it affects the community, the relationships, the family of which we are a part. I've always said there's three dimensions to the care effect. Well, here's the care effect. If you are actively caring for people who are hurting and in need around you, if you are expressing this love in actions, in deed, and in truth, then part of the effect of that is you come into God's presence and you're full of the story of his grace, the power of his love. You've seen it unleashed in your day this very day. You're walking in that love and it gives you a confidence in his presence. There is no confidence in the presence of God without obedience, believing Christ, keeping his commandments. And there is no confidence without the Spirit. I want you to catch this because it's a real change in the text. You have John talking about obedience, loving each other, following God in practical ways. And then in the end of chapter 3, he says, this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. And it is the apostle's first use of the word Spirit in his letter. He's going to use it a dozen other times now in these last two chapters of his letter. He's going to talk about the Spirit a good bit, but up to now, he's not talked about the Spirit. About half of the times that he will use the Spirit on to the end of this letter, it will refer to the Spirit of God. It'll be pretty obvious, and it'll be capitalized in your translation of the Bible. It's going to have a capital S, and that means the Spirit of God. And the other half of those times that he uses it is going to be lowercase, and it's going to be talking about one of several things, and here's what I'd like to give you as my notion of what he means when he says, by the Spirit he gave us, and do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, okay? There's the Holy Spirit, and then there's the power by which the human being thinks, feels, and decides power by which the human being thinks, feels, and decides. Sometimes the word pneuma or spirit, lowercase, refers to evil spirits, to spiritual entities in the world. But it might be helpful for you today to think of the spirit that is the human spirit, not in terms of one of three entities, body, soul, and spirit, 
but in terms of the way that you think, feel, and decide. The power within the human being to think, feel, and decide. Do not believe every spirit. John says, this impulse of rationality and morality and volition, this power to be making decisions moving forward in your world, to relate to others, this power is not always godly. I think the word spirituality catches something about what John is saying here, and that's a very popular word in our generation. I'm a very spiritual person, but I'm not very religious. A lot of people are saying that now. Have you heard that? Did you see the study released this uh, week? I think it was on the front page last Sunday, where... They have again confirmed that people are losing confidence in organized religion. Do you know that? Do you know Baptists are not part of organized religion? We've always been very disorganized. (laughs) All right? But religions and denominations were not nearly as bad as the U.S. Congress now. They're like at 5% confidence. There's just nobody really trusting them anymore. But for religion and denomination and churches, it's around 44%, which has been falling now for 30 years. People just don't have lots of confidence in organized religion, which is okay with me. I'm all right with people not having confidence in organized religion. They don't have a lot of confidence in other things too. Name brands have just lost their luster in the recent generations. It's not just religion. It's a lot of other things. I want to talk to you for a moment about your spirituality, all right? Because spirituality is still important to 95% of the people. Only 5% say they're atheists. 95% of the people in this country believe in a divine being. And for most of them, Spiritual things are very important. So that's what I'm talking to you about right now, okay? The power by which a human being thinks, feels, and decides. It's not always of God. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit's. You are a CSI, okay? Didn't take me long to think of this, okay? Christian spiritual inspector, all right? All right? You're not the judge. You're not the judge. But you are an inspector. How are you going to test the spirits if you don't inspect them? And there are a lot of spirits out there. And they want your allegiance, they want your loyalty, they want your money, all right? And you need to be aware that not every spirit is from God. Some of those spirits, some of those spiritualities are evil. Some of them are immoral. Some of them are dangerous. Some of them are self-destructive. 
And you need to be aware that not all spiritualities are equal. They don't all have the same impact on human beings and communities and families. And you need to be discerning about the spirits and about spirituality. More so in this day, perhaps, than any other day. All right. Bedrock. This is bedrock now. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. That's what John says. Are you willing to put all your eggs in this basket? Or are you still trying to craft your own individual, particular, and unique spiritual path on earth? Are you resisting the notion that the way itself has come to you? You still wanting to make your own way? Hey, I'm talking to you now, all right? Because there are 7 billion different ways to be a spiritual being on the planet. And some people don't want to conform their life to any prior understanding of what that spirituality is. They want to make their own concoction of voodoo, Hindu, Christian, and secularism. They want to put it all together and define their own, okay? And that's not new in the world. There were people like that in the first century who wanted the people in the church to trust them and believe in them, and they were not focused on Jesus as Savior and Lord. They had their focus somewhere else. If you asked them and said, hey, is Jesus in your plan? They said, oh, yeah, he's in there. That's not what we're about. We're about something else. What are you about? Oh, we're about self-motivation or whatever it is. There is a rock, a solid rock, you can build your life upon. His name is Jesus. Amen. And there is no other. You want to have confidence when you come into the presence of God, you must obey His commands and have the Spirit of Christ within you, believing in Him, trusting in Him. It is fundamental. And there is a question you can ask. Now look, I know there is truth in other spiritualities. I'm not telling you that everything some tangential spirituality says is a lie. I know there's truth in other places. But the truth, the fundamental truth, is Jesus Christ, dead, buried, risen from the dead. This is the fundamental. This is where you stand. And so it is the question that you ask when you encounter a spirituality that seems to have some attractiveness to you and you're wondering, well, maybe I need to go down that road, you know? You ask the question, does this spirituality confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? You've got to watch that. 
Because it wasn't even out of the first century before people were saying, oh yeah, Jesus came, but he wasn't really flesh. And so you have religions now that talk about the Christ principle. But they do not confess that God became man in Jesus of Nazareth. Now for John the Apostle, that's heresy. He's telling people, don't you dare go down that route. I saw him. I heard him. I sat beside him at the Last Supper. I encountered this love personally. It was head on. It changed my life. I saw that empty tomb. I ran into it. I looked at that shelf. I saw the linen that was wrapped around him laying like a cocoon. I saw that napkin on his face folded up and in a separate place. I encountered him later. I saw the risen Christ. And I'm telling you, God became man in Jesus of Nazareth. It is the eyewitness testimony which makes a man an apostle. You may say to yourself, well, it's not fair. John got to run into that tomb, but I didn't get to. John got to sit beside him at the Last Supper, but I wasn't there. It's not fair. Well, this this is how things come down, all right? As Christians, we believe that God prepared the planet through 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ for the coming of the promised one. He selected a people through which he sent his word, his power, his prophets. He gave them a liturgy of sacrifice and worship, all of which pointed to the promised one who would come. And that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, born of the Virgin Mary, was the culmination of that process. And that God anchored his revelation to humans in space and time. Some people looked forward to the day that God would do it. And some of us look back to when he did. But in order for it to be real action, in truth, in your face, present on the planet. This is how God had to do it. He became a human in Jesus of Nazareth. This was so powerful for John that for anybody to suggest that Jesus wasn't really man just set him off. Oh, man. Because he was the eyewitness. This was so powerful for Peter, that fisherman who crawled out of that boat and left his nets and became a leader of the band of disciples. It was so powerful for him that he says in his first chapter of his letter, through Jesus, we believe in God who glorified him. And raised him from the dead. It's through Jesus that they even believe in God. This was such a starting revelation to these eyewitness disciples that it changed how they saw the world. I'm standing on their shoulders as I preach to you this truth. 
Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that refuses to confess this is not of God. That's the spirit of Antichrist. And even in the first century, it was already in the world. Now, it's real simple, okay? You're saying, well, what is the Antichrist? The spirit of Antichrist is the ability a human being has to think, feel, and decide on this planet in intention with and opposition to Jesus as Savior and Lord. They can decide to do that. They can decide to say, nah, you know, Christ is a good guy. I like some of the things he said, but I'm not anchoring my life. I'm going this way. People can do that. That's the spirit of Antichrist. It's been around a long time. It's probable that you don't have to wait till someday when the man of sin is revealed to see the spirit of Antichrist. It's probable that you can see it in your own family, in your own friendship circle, maybe even a little bit inside of you. It's the spirit that opposes what God has done in favor of what I'd like to do with my own spirituality. I tell you what, coming to Christ is laying down your pride. Some people have so much confidence in their intellect that they refuse the way of Christ in favor of their own ability to process information. And they think they will have confidence before God because they're so smart. And some people refuse the way of Christ because they feel so good, so moral, so exceptionally stellar as human beings that they believe they're going to have confidence before God just on the basis of their own actions and behavior. Both are a way to disaster and eternal separation from God. There is one way to the Father. That way is Jesus Christ, the Savior, born of the Virgin Mary, living a perfect life on this planet, dying on the cross for our sin, buried in the tomb, raised again through the power of the Father on the third day, ascended to heaven, and yes, present among his people, calling them to faith. This invitation is an invitation for you to trust in Christ alone with all your heart for your eternal future the forgiveness of your sin and the direction of your spiritual life as Christ laid down his life for you this is an invitation to lay down your mind your soul your spirit your body your strength that they all might be his Let's bow together. Is it stirring in you?
this thought that Christ could forgive your sin, could give you a new start. Is the Holy Spirit drawing you to himself? The Holy Spirit is active in this room. He's talking to individuals and maybe to you. You can't come to God unless he speaks to you. But when he speaks to you, he often points out the inadequacy of your own way and the need to know God through Jesus. You can turn to him now saying, Lord, forgive me for my sin. I believe you died on the cross for me. I want you in my life. I open my heart to you as best I know how. And I lay down my life. I want to be yours. If you would pray that prayer, exchanging your life for his. Scripture says, he doesn't cast out anybody. If you open the door, he'll come in. Lord, we pray that you will find us willing to obey, willing to follow, willing to surrender, willing to acknowledge the love you have given us through Jesus Christ, your one and only Son. To see him dying on the cross, not just for the whole world, but for me. To know it was a personal act of redemption that Christ wrought for me. And to appropriate that great deed of love personally through faith in Christ. Lord, draw us to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.